This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this, of course, is Matt Splained. Today, we're asking whether Web3 is the solution to what we perceive as the faults of the current internet, or simply the latest upgrade where we repeat the same mistakes. What a light and sunny intro Matt has given me today. Thanks very much for that, Matt. Hey, Rich. Yeah, you know, that's just the the kind of positive frame of mind that I've been in recently. So, um, no, I I kind of uh, tread a bit lightly around Web3 because I'm aware that it kind of is to technology what comic books are to popular culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get the slightest character or plot reference wrong and, uh, you know, you get the kind of abuse that's usually reserved for mass murderers um, as, you know, an aggrieved army of geeks uh, confronts you for your astounding and astonishing ignorance. (laughs) Um, But I came across a a short piece on New Scientist about um, something that I'd been wondering how to tackle for a while. And that's the potential of Web3 to reduce our dependence on these kind of big tech companies that Mm. a lot of people express their dislike for. And perhaps to, you know, undo some of the data harvesting excesses of the Web2 era. So um, as ever, a a quick sideline, what do I mean by Web2 and Web3? Well, Web2, or as most of us know it more simply, the internet, Broadly speaking, Web2 is the social web. So it's the version of the internet that we've been accustomed to. Um, Well, I mean, since around 2004, actually, it came in in about 1999, but we started sort of using the terminology more around 2004. And it's the idea of sites that, um, you know, are are based around creating user-generated content. Mm -hmm. So obviously, most people immediately think, social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, uh, MySpace, if we're going further back into history. But it's actually a lot more than that. You know, it's e-commerce sites like Amazon where products are rated by the users. It's that power of the crowd, you know, quite Mm. literally in the case of things like crowdfunding. The democratic web. Well, you know, some people even say the performative web, which I'm not sure is wholly fair. But I kind of waver around terms like democratic. So yes, we, you know, or people talked about Web2 technologies democratizing the internet, this enormous flood of free services that allowed people to start blogs, to reconnect with childhood friends online, to find and join these globally distributed communities. And we saw Tools like Twitter play an integral part in uh, the Arab Spring uprisings in the late noughties and the early tweens. Um, But I'm not going to get into, you know, where things are perceived to have gone wrong with Web2 just yet. So I'll I'll go into that definition of Web3. Uh, So Web3, or as most of us will know it more simply in the future, the internet, um, (laughs) I'm not I'm not just trying to be clever or smart Alec by repeating that. You know, as we explored in the the series of metaverse shows in November and December, web 1, web 2, web 3, these are all just experience layers that it's terminology that 
idiots mm. like me use. To everyone else, it is just the internet. You know, when it was Web 1, when it was dial-up and AOL and GeoCities, that was the internet. It's very different from the web of today, but it's still just the internet. So what I want to get into today is looking at how Web3 will kind of change the structure of the internet we experience and address some of the issues that a lot of people seem to have with the direction that these kind of social web, the Web 2.0 technologies have gone in. And are we going to be speaking about the metaverse again today? I'm going to try not to, um, partly because I don't want to make it even more confusing. Right. Um, some of the, the subject matter is similar to what we discussed in the Metaverse episodes in the sense that this is all technology that is still in the process of being built. You know, when we talk about Web3, what we're really talking about today is um, decentralization. We're talking about blockchains. We're talking about sort of crypto and tokens, but mainly we're kind of talking about decentralization because mm. decentralization is being pushed as this democratic future of the internet. That's why I said, you know, democratic is kind of a loaded term when we're talking about all of this. Whereas mm. in Web 2, we had centralization being pushed as the democratic force. So we're kind of having one set of technologies pushed as democratizing, and then we're seeing them as being oppressive, and we're pushing another mm. set of technologies as being democratizing. So mm. today we'll look at some of the issues surrounding, you know, the, the promise versus the reality of the social web era of Web 2, um, and whether Web 3 is a solution to some of those issues, or whether it's just going to be, you know, a different set of technologies, but the same kind of traps that we fall into. Okay, then um, let's start with Web 2.0 and where you think, um, I, I guess it started to go off the rails a bit. Yeah, I can do that. I mean, a few years ago, um, pre-pandemic, in fact, we talked a lot about certainty and uncertainty on the show um, and how some of that was down to this seeming unaccountability of technology in the companies that mm. operate it. Uh, this was the era that people were starting to mainstream talk about surveillance capitalism. Uh, we had data breaches at all sorts of Web 2.0 companies who it seems weren't really taking uh, our privacy and that data security very seriously. Uh -huh. uh, on top of that, we had these same companies effectively giving away huge tranches of information about us to third parties who paid the money, uh, like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, which, you know, I mean, it just seems so quaint now but yeah. the, the the social web it seemed to become this seething pit of kind of rage and dissatisfaction and discontent um you know there were people who were hiding behind anonymous accounts and they just you know just blithely send out rape or death threats to to other people. Uh, we had this sort of emergence of doxing, uh, revealing someone's name and address details, or as we used to call it when I was a kid, the phone book. <laughs> when I was a kid as well, Matt, I'll, I'll let you in with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, now we're at this, this 
place where everything is public, right? Our information is public. We we, we give it away for free. Mostly things like your location even. You're taking a snapshot on um, Instagram or whatever social media you are, and you're checking into places and that kind of stuff. You're, you're literally telling people where you are, you know, with GPS data, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, but, I mean, that's one of the issues that I find so interesting about um, doxing. People are so afraid of having their home address revealed, mm. yet they put all of this information online, whereas 20 or 30 years ago, people wouldn't have dreamed of putting that information online, but right. they were happy to have their name, their address printed in this book that yeah. anyone could just walk into a phone box and uh, and look at. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not even going to bother explaining what a phone box is to anyone <laughs> under the age of 20. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you're right. You know, we were seeing the proliferation of disinformation. We were seeing this propaganda, this hate speech. We were mm. seeing um, videos of hate crimes uh, and atrocities on our social feeds, uh, terroristic acts, all this content that seemed beyond our control and beyond the control of the companies providing the services. You know, this is where we saw the social sites really start to invest hard in content moderation, both in terms of human moderation and developing machine uh, algorithm-based uh, content moderation systems as well. But mm -hmm. when COVID happened, we pushed a lot of those discussions about our relationship with tech companies to the back of our minds. And during that time, our dependence actually increased. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people used QR codes for the first time during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. Um, but just a couple of years later, it seems that almost every restaurant and cafe expects you to scan a code and order your food online. And when you go into um, stores, you know, the 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 retail counter, the, the point of sale, is covered in codes for e-wallets that allow us to, to scan and pay with our phones. Even down at my local wet market, you know, on a Sunday morning, when I go and get my fruit in the morning, I'm no longer paying cash. It, it's the touch-and-go wallet, or it's something else to pay. The uncles, the aunties down there, completely familiar with this tech, you know, have no issue with it. There's maybe one or two people that might take cash and and they tend to be few and far between. And you can see that they're struggling with business, actually. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I had a, a lock chained, uh, changed recently. So, you know, mm. one of our doors jammed and the guy came and I hadn't taken cash out. So I said to him, oh, do you want me to go and get you cash? And he's like, no, just transfer it to me you know yeah. like, like you said you know we've we've just kind of gone full circle in in this kind of pandemic period mm. we've broken that dependence on cash that we've had for hundreds of years i mean yeah, that yeah. is that is a massive change to the way we we conduct our lives and we see that in a lot of other areas you know we went from hating video calls and refusing to make them to hating video calls, but spending most of our working day on them. Uh, Richard's laughing because we're doing this as a video call. Yes, um, yes. And I hate but, them, but hey, there you go. Exactly. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it was, for a lot of people, it was the only way to stay in touch with family, friends, co-workers during a period where we couldn't see people in person. So we've come through the pandemic as these shell-shocked, socially inhibited and technology-dependent 
automatons. You know, as you said, the the people at the wet market struggling with mm. the technology in order to just make the living that they made before the yeah. pandemic ha- happened. Yeah. So a lot of people aren't happy about it, and I get that. You know, people are deeply uneasy about these things, even though they helped us through that difficult time because they've become the norm, the standard, Mm -hmm. but nobody actually asked us if we wanted it to be that again, like the people you're talking about at Mm. the wet market. And a lot of these technologies don't feel very social anymore. They're not empowering us. They're not making us feel good. Uh, We stare at social media feeds of people living their best lives, and we compare those lives to our own, even Mm -hmm. though we know the feeds we're looking at are probably faked. You know, people who make it look like they're permanently on holiday when actually they just took dozens and dozens of shots and clips on the trips they took months before, and they're just spreading them out. So as a result, you know, we create these equally false narratives around our own lives to try and compete. It's like we've all become a, a like a smaller scale version of that Netflix show, Inventing Anna, you know, <laughs> the, the fake heiress who charmed her way into New York society and just lied about her life. A lot of us now are a little bit Anna. And the social web just seems to amplify that kind of personality and that kind of personality trait. Yeah. Um, You haven't mentioned the business model aspect yet, though. Well, yeah. I mean, pretty early on, we decided that we didn't want to pay for stuff, um, (laughs) which wasn't helped by the explosion of, you know, think pieces about the freemium model um, and how freemium could also be a a democratizing force. Another Mm. reason I don't like this terminology. Um, You know, there was this idea that we'd all be able to take free flights around the world if we watched a few ads from our seat while we were in air. But very quickly, we saw that advertising revenue concentrated around companies like Google and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And there were simply far more freemium products than there were brands to advertise and fund them. And even for companies like Facebook and Google, who were taking most of that money, the ad revenue wasn't enough for them to keep the lights on. So, you know, I'm not saying that we should blame ourselves for what big tech has become. Sorry, I said that wrong. We should blame ourselves (laughs) for what big tech has become. Um, We wanted free. And even when it was obvious that the ads weren't going to pay the bills, we still refused to pay. In fact, we even started to use plugins that blocked the ads Mm. from the sites that were using them to give us free content. So the social web sort of turned itself into this kind of pretzel in order to make money. We stopped being customers. We turned into the product. The customers were the companies that these platforms were selling our information to. The data generated by the uh, content we posted was and still is packaged up and sold. And that led to all of these Cambridge Analytica level scandals when, uh, you know, it became known that all those free services where we clicked yes without reading the terms and conditions were painting these incredibly intimate portraits of our lives. Now, that's not an excuse. Uh, A lot of terms and conditions are set up so that you don't read them. But a lot of the dissatisfaction with the social web could have been avoided perhaps 
if we'd agreed to pay, just like we do with everything else in life. Now, even if you do argue that we've willingly let ourselves be turned into a product instead of a customer, um, would we still feel so alienated if the power or the ownership was more distributed? I think this is where it gets a, a, a little bit murky and where we'll pick up with Web3 after the break. You know, the original web was distributed. People maintained their own sites and servers. They were in control, but with that control came responsibility and also mm -hmm. ability. Um, mm -hmm. Towards the, the that transition phase between Web1 and Web2 is where we saw hosting services strengthen their role. Um, because up until that point, you had to know how to host a website. You had to know, you know, I, you either had to have your own server or you had to know how to connect to a server. Suddenly, you could start a blog or a social profile without needing to know code. So Web 2.0 is where the internet became easy to use. Um, you know, one of the reasons Google became this de facto gateway to the internet is because it had a great product. It had accurate results that put all of the content of this, you know, information superhighway, as we called it at that time, it put it at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. But two decades on, it feels less like empowerment and more like a weight because, you know, you peel back the layers of the technology and you see all this interfe uh, interference and intervention from big companies and governments. And people feel as though they're being manipulated by all of the algorithms, that they aren't yeah. in control of what they see on their news feeds. So mm -hmm. there's this general erosion of trust, especially amongst older tech users who were kind of skeptical to begin with. Mm. So we see rather than democratization, we see the potential for some of these technologies to actually alienate and exclude people. You yeah. know, people who don't have data on their phones, people who don't even have a smartphone, people who don't have cards versus stores that no longer take cash. And even though it may only be a small percentage of people who are affected by this, it's kind of the antithesis of what the social web claimed to represent. Yeah, and on that note, uh, when we come back, can Web3 break the stranglehold of big tech, or is it simply set to replace it with the next generation of big tech monopolies? You're tuned in to Matt Splaint here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Budding Fresh Ministers, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. Uh, we're talking about Web 2 and Web 3 today, or as Matt puts it, the current internet and the future internet. Where do we even start, Matt? Uh, well, with Web 3, I guess with uh, those blockchains and that decentralization, uh, right. because that's kind of the, the key to the parts of Web 3 that we're talking about today. Um, 
I'm actually making it my mission to become more Web3 literate this year so that I can answer these questions more confidently and competently. Um, but most people know what blockchain is, sort of roughly, at least, you know, mm. people who listen to shows like this or keep perhaps a lazy eye on, on what's happening in, in technology in general. Um, I know that that's a minority of people overall, which we'll discuss later. But blockchain is basically an encrypted ledger, a list of transactions that enables transparency and security. Now, it mm -hmm. can be centralized or decentralized. So a lot of governments and financial institutions are looking into or have actually started rolling out centralized blockchains. Uh, for example, they can make international money transfers pretty much instant because the money isn't moved so much as the ownership is transfer, uh, transferred. Yeah. And that transfer or transaction is then recorded on that blockchain. But when we talk about Web3, especially in the context of reducing our dependence on big companies, what we're really talking about is this trend towards decentralization. Which, of course, brings us to Bitcoin, for example. Yeah, which we now think of mostly as a form of digital money. But actually, mm. Bitcoin um, is, was the first decentralized blockchain. So it was created back in 2008. Um, how do um, centralized and decentralized blockchains differ? Well, at the very kind of surface level that we're talking about, it's basically an issue of control and ownership. Uh, a centralized ledger is owned by an entity that might be an individual or it could be um, a, a company or groups of those things. Whereas a decentralized ledger is distributed, it doesn't have a single set of owners. Copies mm -hmm. of that ledger are held on multiple computers. And it's this distributed characteristic which slightly counterintuitively actually guarantees that it's secure and accurate. Why do you say counterintuitive? Well, I mean, for example, think of a bank. So your bank tells you how much is in your bank account, right? So yeah, your yeah. trust is actually vested in that bank, that institution, keeping accurate records and not trying to cheat you. Mm -hmm. Now, if your bank details were held by a kind of a loose cooperative of individuals, you would possibly have less trust in it because you don't know all of those people or those entities. You don't necessarily have that trust with them. But really, a decentralized blockchain is a bit like having hundreds of accountants. That way, no one actor actually has the power to manipulate your holdings uh, or steal or alter um, what you have. It's actually a remarkably simple concept. The mm. system is honest because there are so many copies, which allows you to see exactly where someone has attempted to manipulate the receipts because they won't match any of the other copies. It, mm -hmm. it effectively breaks the chain. Now, today isn't about going into how all of those copies are updated because, again, not enough time, different show. Mm. Um, now, blockchains, of course, we hear about them in relation to things like NFTs and cryptocurrencies, but there are a lot more than that. Mm. And they can be used in very simple ways as very as well as very complex ways. Um, for example, it, this is an example of kind of one of the more simple ones. I was talking to someone uh, recently um, who 
was previously in government, who mentioned the potential of putting things like phishing quotas onto a blockchain, which would enable auditors to see at a glance who had taken what and when out of the sea. So, you Mm. know, very simple and straightforward, not large in scale because it's a very kind of, you know, relatively small number of people that that would uh, kind of relate to. Um, Similarly, Elections could be carried out using blockchain technology, um, which would be an antidote to the folks who believe that voter fraud is is rampant because the blockchain would provide a tamper-proof receipt of the votes. Yeah. Now, um, NFTs, we already know in terms of um, sort of digital artworks, but a lot of creative products might find their way onto the blockchain. Um, music podcasts, for example, um, writing, um, providing content creators with a new way to earn money and get rewarded. And is this the democracy aspect that you were talking about? Well, it's democratic in the sense that it's about recording participation. And in the case of many of the, the blockchain technologies being built, it's about rewarding participation as well. And mm. this is the the kind of next level of what we see and perhaps the kind of wider use case. Uh, and this is people building decentralized apps, also known as D-apps, uh, on blockchains or on peer-to-peer networks. So again, what is uh, a decentralized app? So we'll go with um, something that's quite basic and easy for people to understand. Um, take an app like Twitter or Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um These are examples of centralized apps. You give your information to them uh, and a private company owns the platform. So they're the gatekeepers of your content. A decentralized version of Twitter or Facebook would not be owned by a person or an entity or a group of people. So for example, if you had a a D-app Twitter clone, there would be no moderator to come and step in and delete your content because your content is an entry on the chain. It is indelible. Uh, and dApps can be used in exactly the same kind of scenarios that we use centralized apps now. You can use them for games, for social media, uh, in finance and real estate. You can use them uh, for health apps. Um, they're especially useful uh in terms of logistics and supply chain, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can go on and on because they provide records that are trustworthy and transparent. Yeah, and and I think before we go any further, you might want to explain to everyone the difference between transparency and privacy. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. So the transactions or interactions are transparent, but that doesn't mean that the user has to be. So that doesn't mean that if you're on uh, a decentralized app, that all of your information is available for anyone who wants to to view it. Now, I'm not going to go into this aspect right now because, you know, I've already gone off on a bunch of tangents away from the central theme. It's not like you, Matt. No, not at all. Um, but user activity on on blockchains with um, dApps can be governed by what are called smart contracts. So just go with me on this one. If you mm-hmm. want to know more about um, smart contracts, we will talk about them in future shows, but you can go and look it up on sites like Investorpedia. But essentially, the smart contract means that your privacy is 
maintained. Now, that doesn't mean that your privacy is absolute. Uh, as we've mentioned before, particularly with uh, financial transactions on blockchains, forensic accountants can track the movements of assets through the blockchain, and they see at what point those are converted into cash like USD uh, via um, digital wallets, um, because people use email identities to set up the wallets, and you can often reverse engineer who actually owns them by following mm -hmm. those trails. Now, that's just a relatively simple example. But the, the, the big difference here is that your personal information is not centrally held in a private company server. Now, that's more important than it sounds because it means that you can move from one uh, D app to another. So you could move from one Twitter clone to another Twitter clone simply by taking your information. It's recorded on the blockchain. You simply swap it to the other app. It's not owned or possessed by the app that you were using before. Um, that's something, of course, that you can't do with your information when it's held by a company like Twitter or, or Facebook. Hmm. And that kind of brings us back to the central theme. Will uh, Web3 uh, tear down big tech? Honestly, you know, we've, we've been talking about this for about 25 minutes now. No, 30 minutes probably. <laughs> and I can only give you a, a really poor answer, which is who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Half an hour in, and the answer Half is, an who knows? In. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, but partly because this goes back to the principles of the original web, going back mm. to that web 1.0. In order mm. to use that, you had to be extremely tech literate. Unless you were in the know, you couldn't find Usenets, you couldn't find message boards or anything else on that internet. So yeah. web 2.0 represented ease of use and these streamlined user interfaces. So we essentially traded ownership for usability. In Web3, we get to take back ownership, but we still have some of those same tech issues of complexity. Um, so this is where we've used the example of, the, uh, of Mastodon before, the Twitter clone that has gained in profile, if not maybe active users since Elon Musk took over Twitter. Now, Mastodon isn't really Web3, but it is an example of a, a decentralized app. And it's also kind of hard to use. It's yeah. more difficult to find people. It's difficult to find content. Different Mastodon servers have different codes of conduct for users, which goes to show you how messy democracy is. Mm -hmm. So we see that in a lot of these first-generation Web3 services. They're kind of techy, they're kind of hard to use, and they're kind of glitchy, which, of course, are all things that don't matter at all to geeks. <laughs> but surely over time, that, that will change as the technology evolves, surely. And, and that's why I said the answer here is poor, because, um, for example, if you look at a lot of the decentralized apps right now, they're built on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, yeah. Tezos is another chain that's gaining prominence. There's a whole bunch of them. If an app is decentralized and not owned, how incentivized is the community to create 
a simple user experience. You mm. know, as I said, democracy is messy. So even if the chain or the app allows the community to vote on functionality, which is another kind of core principle of a lot of Web3 services, that the users get to vote on what happens to it, that can also be a recipe for bloat rather than seamlessness. You know, mm. you get that situation where you know, Microsoft of the the early noughties, where all of their products had every feature that you could imagine in them, but you couldn't use any of it. Mm. Um, but then, you know, if if blockchain organizations take on a more central role, um, governing standards, um, you know, minimum standards for user interfaces, et cetera, et cetera, not only does that run counter to the original principles of Web3, it has the potential to elevate those companies to the position of the big tech companies that they were originally supposed to be this alternative to. And I guess that's the final point. Is there a consumer demand for Web 3.0? There is, but it's still very small. Um, it's going to be hard to get people to move from their Gmail to a decentralized alternative until you can demonstrate that it's frictionless and mm -hmm. that the user experience is going to be comparable. I don't think we're at the point or level of dissatisfaction where we turn our backs on the companies that we're currently using. So overall, I think it's probably too simplistic to look at Web3 as an escape from Web 2.0 or a kind mm. of cure-all for, for what we think has gone wrong. With technology, our reason for using it is generally pretty simple, that it's better than what we used before. And that, I think, is where we'll see the utility of Web3 growing. Uh, I think the debates about centralization, decentralization, I think that's going to be lost on, on most people, whose mm. primary concern is, does it do the thing and does it do the thing where? Uh, well, so that's where I think we'll see the growth. Um, the openness of Web3 allows us to use the technology in different ways. Um, and if that sounds like a segue into a future episode, that's because it is. <laughs> well done. Thank you very much, Matt. Oh, my pleasure. Of course, that was Matt Splained. And if you did miss any part of this episode, don't forget you can download it wherever you normally get it from. We recommend the BFM app. It's, all, uh, it's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. And for some other stuff, you can check Matt out on his Substack. It is culturepop.substack.com. Correct or not? That's correct. Well, there you, you go. This has been Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.